Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to What's the Word on Blog Talk Radio. My name is Shabal John, and thank you for joining me. Uh, right now, we're waiting for Dr. Dimitrovic. He is a associate professor of history on the campus of San Houston State University, and he is a contributor to Forbes. Uh, while we're waiting on him, I'm going to talk about a little thing called Festival Expression, which is going on this week. Uh, so far, it has been tremendous. Uh, they had different uh, performers, uh, like uh, like on, t- on Tuesday night, they had the opera, uh, opera, con- you know, different students singing opera, Spanish opera, like from, from different works uh, from Spanish poets. And it was amazing because of the fact that many, I mean, you've seen so many people on Broadway and uh, opera, like so many famous people. Well, here you, you have a chance to to see up-and-coming stars here, you know, do, you know, doing excellent performances. And in this case, it this was really, really great because of the fact that, you know, you get to see different uh, performers and, you know, see the talent of of those. And it and I can honestly say that, you know, it was it was really nice. Now now of course uh, like the last the festival is Blasion, uh many people have been, you know I mean have been intrigued by by it. Um uh, Look at look at the fact like with um uh, Paula Vasquez. She she's a she's a Chilean who has you know with her works you know shown her works with the home museum and they were amazing and the fact that many people have done so much you know it it was really great. Now what. We're still waiting on uh, Dr. Dimitrovic, but let me talk about him. Oh, here he is right now, uh, Dr. Dimitrovic. Um, first of all, let me let me talk about you, Dr. Dimitrovic. Dr. Dimitrovic. Yeah, hello. Hey, Dr. Dimitrovic, how are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm doing good. Now, I was just uh, talking about the festival inspiration that's going on this week, mm-hmm. and how how much you know. You know, performers have you know been doing doing great, and you yourself have studied in Spain during your time. Is that correct? That's true. Yes. Now, what was the reason for that for you? Uh, was the reason uh, the reason was I had befriended a, a Spaniard, uh, a fellow from Barcelona, from Girona in Spain, near Barcelona, just to the north uh, east when I was in college at Columbia University uh, back in the late 1980s, and he told me that, um, you know, he knew some some scholarships to study at the University of Pamplona in, uh, in a camp where I could teach basketball over the summer, and uh, I took him up on the offer, and, you know, I went to Spain in Pamplona. Um, this is, you know, back where, the, it, where they run the bowls uh, about uh, 23 years ago. Okay. And how long were you there for? Uh, I spent a couple extended summers there, two, two, two extended summers, so maybe a cumulative eight, nine months. Okay. Now, 
Now, what many people don't know is the fact that you you graduated from Harvard University, with doctorate, and also from Columbia. And what was that like for you? Uh, was that like, uh, yeah, the post schools were great. You know, my alma mater is Columbia. You know, obviously it's in uh, New York City, and uh, that was a very uh, kind of vibrant place to be in uh, in the late 1980s. Uh, but, but, but Cambridge, Massachusetts, where Harvard was, is actually was a, a lot calmer uh, than New York, so it was a, a different environment. Okay, now let's get to the to your uh, your your Forbes column that you do. Mm-hmm. You've been uh, writing for them for two to two to three years now. About yeah, two and a half years. Yeah, two and a half years. Yes, uh, I I saw the one the one that you talk about the secret culprit of the Great Recession mm. of '08. Uh, it's it's really fascinating. And can you elaborate more on that? Yeah, uh, this is an argument. Um, that uh, is associated with Robert Mundell, the great uh, Columbia University economist who won the Nobel Prize, who's the subject of my book, Iconoclasts. And I first heard Robert Mundell uh, talk about this, actually, um, a couple years ago. And he's, he's, he's talked about it on, on various forums. But what he basically says is that you know, the exchange rate of the dollar against the euro and against other major currencies went way up in the summer and fall of 2008. And this indicates that money is tight. I mean, this indicates that the dollars, you know, is that the euro is becoming cheap, that all the other currencies are becoming cheap. Everyone's rushing into the dollar, and so the dollar should be supplied in such a context, or else there will be tight money. And tight money is always associated with great recessions or with recessions. So, um, if you're going to have dollar appreciation by 25%, you're going to, you know, you're, you're going to uh, build the conditions of a great recession. Okay. Now, now, uh, how did you get into econo- economists? You know, since you're, you're, you know, you're a historian, like, at, you know, right now. But how did you get into ec- economics? Yeah, I mean, uh, I am a historian. I was my undergraduate major, and it was my, my PhD is in, in history. Although one of my graduate fields was in economic history in the economics department, and I, and I taught in the economics department when I was in, in uh, graduate school as an undergraduate. A teaching assistant in economics. Um, the, uh, I mean, the Industrial Revolution just, you know, became apparent to me as, as a very important event, uh, an exceedingly major event in modern world history. When I was studying that as a budding historian, and so I decided that I have to study some economics too. And the the reason I did is just because the immensity of the event, the Industrial Revolution, is just so so significant that that you know it has to be studied. Okay. Now, now you've uh, given presentations at you know the Federal Reserve, and you know other, and and of course you said you actually was one of the co-presenters with uh, Robert Mundell at a conference a couple years ago. Mm, uh, yeah, what was sure. Like for you? Uh, yeah, that was great. Yeah, that was sponsored by the Manhattan Institute and, and the Wall Street Journal. Uh, that was, uh, uh, you know, very good. It was a reflection on the history of supply-side economics. And so we gathered a number of people who had been uh, significant in the movement. And, of course, my book had recently come out, and the book was a history of supply-side economics. And so it brought in Rob Mundell and um, uh, Arthur Laffer and uh, Larry Kudlow and Louis Lehrman and Steve Forbes and a couple other people who had really been involved in the supply-side revolution 
And uh, okay. you know, we just talked about it for for all day long, and it's up. It's uh, the video of it is up on the uh, on the internet for the Manhattan Institute, and it was uh, you know, it was a great event. Okay, now I want to get to the the one that you talked about, uh, Jack Kemp. Well, mm-hmm. let, let me reiterate. Uh, many people associate the recovery. Many don't think of the Reaganomics as as important because they many thought that it was basically the cause of you know small businesses you know affected the farmers and all that. And of course, you know, you, you, you talked about how, you know, how that has contributed to the growth of, you know, during the late eight, during the early eighties, basically. Uh, can you talk more about that? Um, uh, yeah. Well, uh, let me let me say first of all, there was a tremendous small business revolution under the auspices of the re- 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 implementation of Reaganomics. I mean, n- business formation increased very substantially in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, so venture capital uh, came out of its shell that it had retreated into in the late 1970s because of stagflation. I mean, the Fortune 500 got completely overturned. I mean, 80% of the Fortune 500 uh, was, re- was, uh, was, um, was new within 20 years after 1980. So there was a complete churning in the American business environment, and small companies started, and small companies became big companies. And a lot of big companies became dinosaurs. So... Uh, the idea that there was not any kind of dynamism on the small business side is a very bizarre accusation to throw at the 1980s, and it's, it's one that you know I I try to disprove as much as I can. Okay, now the now your book Econoclast that's actually is a great read, and other and whoever's listening, you guys should get it because you will learn a lot. But like you documented like different uh, you know different supply siders and. You know, like how, like go through uh, through each decade, like with, for example, Arthur Laffer and, of course, Robert Mondell and Jack Kemp. Uh, how did you? What was the process like for you to in writing that book, and how long did it take? Yeah, uh, the, the the basic procedure in writing the book uh, was uh, to take inspiration from a very uh, impressive document. Uh, I, I, the, I first got the idea to write the book when I first listened to and read Robert Mundell's Nobel Prize lecture, a lecture he had given in December 1999. I probably first came across it a couple of years later, and it is it was called a reconsideration of the 20th century. And it was a history of the 20th century from the perspective of supply-side economics, which Robert Mundell had founded back in the 60s. And so it all is is just a sweeping history of the 20th century, all the great events of the 20th century from the perspective of his economic theory. And that's all Iconoclast is. All Iconoclast is is just an illustration of Robert Mundell's Nobel Prize lecture plus all the evidence. So I just went and researched all the evidence that, that, that illustrate Mundell's points. So it, that that was the the procedure by which I went and wrote the book. So if you're interested in Econoclast, you can get it in a nutshell. If you just go and watch Robert Mundell's one-hour lecture at NobelPrize.org uh, from 1999. Uh, so it was, you know, it was it was a great pleasure to write. Okay. Now I got to I I can't even say advocate, but you know I I got to play devil's advocate on this one. Because uh, there's some who would say that, uh, like for example, the bailouts and you know it jump started the economy after the recession, and it's like you know what would you say to that? 
Well, I, I, there's no evidence of any kind of jump start. I mean, the growth since the since the recession has been uh, well, 1.6 percent per year. I mean, that uh, doesn't even come close to the definition of a jump start. So, uh, no growth. Yeah, in order for there to be any any contention that there's been an adequate recovery, there has to be the basic number there that you know recovery has to be three, four, five percent. Under Reagan, it was you know six, seven percent. Two years coming out of the trough, um, you know we're, we're at least one third of that at, at best. So there's been no jump start. So none, none of those bailouts work to to get the economy back on the road to recovery. Okay. Now, now, now I want to get more into your background. Uh, you actually, well, of course, you went to Harvard and Columbia, mm-hmm. but what like? Well, did you face any adversity in, you know, in like getting the, you know, in Harvard, like, you know, like in the process of getting your PhD? Do you had any setbacks? Well, yeah, I mean, there's always adversity. I guess the most, uh, the biggest adversity uh, is always intellectual. I mean, you have to figure things out. You know, you have to understand things, and some of these issues can get pretty tough, kind of naughty intellectually. Um, so I guess that's most important um, is an adversity is as goes adversity, uh, but that's you know part of the challenge of uh, of intellectual life. I guess you know some people it comes very easy and that's great. Although that's not really true in that even the even the greatest kind of geniuses they they always have to kind of rethink things um, and you know go forward. But one, one thing I did kind of pick up is 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 an old is the verity of an old uh, rule. Which is this? The simple principles explain everything. It's so no matter how, how much, however complex an issue gets, if you understand it, you always have to go back and see what sim, how the simple principles are unfolding. So I, I would say whatever whatever challenges there were, they, they were mainly intellectual. Okay. Now you've uh, you've actually uh, made a lot of appearances, like on you know local and national networks, you know talking about. You know the supply side. Uh, for you, what was what was that? Is that like is that mainly like a main platform to get your message out about what you know what needs to be done? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm kind of a lone wolf in uh, in the scholarly history community. I mean, there really isn't any history of supply side economics. Uh, that's ever been written outside of my own work, and it's a very important topic in our recent history. So I, I feel a kind of very heavy obligation to go out there and make sure I uh, I spread the word as much as possible, and, and that I you know, do do research as much as possible and publicize it, uh, because I'm, I'm basically the only, only one doing this, and it's a pretty important topic. Okay, and um, now how did you end up? Uh, like, did you decide to become a teacher after, like, what what made you decide to become a teacher? Yeah, it's funny. You say teacher. I mean, right out of college, I did spend a year um, teaching in uh, the New York City public school system. So I taught seventh grade social studies and ma- mathematics uh, in the Bronx, New York, uh, well, for one year out of college. I did just become, decide to become a teacher at that level uh, just to kind of hold on. Uh, but no, really, the, truly, the reason it, that I went to graduate school and pursued an academic career is is literally that my professors at, at Columbia, where, where I went to college, told me that I should do that. They said that you'd make a historian, so I, I took their advice. I said, okay, I'll do it. Huh. Okay. Now, how did you get get here to Sam Houston? 
Well, uh, I was, you know, on the job market. Uh, I got my PhD and um, was, you know, I, I was working at, at temporary work with year-by-year appointments at various places in Pennsylvania. And I was looking for a permanent job, and this, this job came up, and it was very interesting. Uh, I was int- I'm, I'm very interested in, in places that are very economically successful. So it's one, one, things that, one of the things that attracted me to the Houston area. I love boom towns. Uh, and so, again, I interviewed here, but this is back in 2005, and, and they offered me the job, and I've been here since then. Okay. Now, let's talk more about uh, Jack Kemp. Mm-hmm. Kemp, uh, what many uh, listeners probably don't know is the fact that Jeff Kemp was actually part of the Steelers' uh, dynasty back in the 70s, I believe. Uh, uh, no, they, they, not, not quite. He was with the Buffalo Bills back in the 60s. Buffalo but Bills, he, he, but still, he still won the AFL title twice with the Buffalo Bills. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Well, sorry about that. Uh, anyway, former NFL player. But yeah, at, a, a, AFL, American Football League, their competitor. American anyway, the, football, the precursor sorry. of the American Football Conference. Yeah. Anyway, sure. <laughs> okay. Sorry about that. Uh, but yeah. anyway, um, he actually became like a congressman, and you know, and he he actually made some contributions. Like for example, you you talked about how. Kemp almost made Carter, and he basically he had introduced the you know the supply side to Carter, but Carter did turn him down. Why do you think that was a crucial mistake on Carter's part that that now everyone now remembers uh, Reagan for? Yeah, I, I actually believe that uh, Jack Kemp has a claim to being the most significant congressman of the post-World War II period. And I, I think it's a pretty strong case for that. The only others with a real claim, I think, are those that had to do with civil rights legislation. But, um, yeah, I mean, all Kemp was doing, I mean, he was doing a lot, but he was proposing an across-the-board tax cut model off after JFK's tax cut from 1964. And he was doing this in 1977-78. It was called the Kemp-Roth tax cut. Roth is after the senator from... Delaware, who co-sponsored it. And if Jimmy Carter had passed it, and it did pass kind of both houses of Congress uh, in October 1978, if Jimmy Carter had signed the law, we, you would have had this across-the-board tax cut. And then pa- Paul Volcker would have been appointed Federal Reserve Chairman, because Carter appointed him himself six months later in August, ten months later. And that's the Reagan revolution right there. The kemp tax cut plus Paul Volcker's monetary policy produced in tandem, when in tandem, the great 1980s boom that Ronald Reagan got. Well, if Jimmy Carter had signed the Camp Roth tax cut, he would have got that, and I think he would have been reelected in a landslide in 1980. I think Jimmy Carter to this day would get down in history, believe it or not, as one of our greatest presidents. Yeah. But why do you think he was hesitating on that? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I think it's, it's you know, <laughs> hey, looking back on it, it's uh, at least from the perspective of the success of the 1980s, it was a pretty considerable mistake. Well, we know why he hesitated. Um, he wanted the rate code, the tax rate code, to become more progressive, and he was—he had been fighting to it. So there's big tax cuts fever that swept the land in the spring and summer and fall of 1978, and there are all these tax cuts being put on Jimmy Carter's plate, and he keeps rejecting all of them. There's capital gains tax cut, income tax cut, all sorts of stuff, and he just—he doesn't want it. The only thing he wants to do is make the rate code more progressive. He will give poor people a tax cut if the rich people pay more. So he wanted to twist the system. But he didn't want a net tax cut. Um, so, I mean, that kind of equality concern is what convinced him that he wasn't going to have this Kemper tax cut. So he didn't get it, and the economy tipped into recession, and he got uh, you know got run out of office. 
Okay. Now, let's, uh, like, you, ta- you taught the, uh, you teach an economic history class That's on right. here. Okay. Now, I can honestly say that, you know, I've learned, I, you know, I've actually learned economics from your class because mm-hmm. you taught it simply. Uh, like, what do you, what many people don't know is the fact that you talked about, you know, like going through the historical background, basically starting from the, well, before the Industrial Revolution, and you basically talk, talk about diversifying, like explaining how diversity, diversifying your income or whatever works. Now, why do you think that, that many people who want to invest don't diversify? You mean in their in their own in their own personal investments? Oh, in per, own personal investments, whatever it is that they want to, you know, because of the fact. Well, uh, let me say that a lot of business success, individual business success stories, um, come from people who do not diversify I and mean, who just become um, focused on one particular thing that they do very well, and th- those are our great entrepreneurs. Although even even great entrepreneurs can can do many different kinds of things, so um, you know, diversification doesn't necessarily make sense from from the perspective of, of somebody who wants to uh, to make make a great contribution to the to the economy um, because it might, you, you might have to concentrate on one thing and do it well. Um, you know, kind of part of the division of labor in Adam Smith. Um, although although as I as I'm going to repeat. Um, those people usually can do can do that in many different ways. So that is a kind of diversification. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not as as big a, an advocate of this diversification stuff that you hear. You always hear people should diversify their investments so that, to minimize their risk. Yeah, okay, fine, I understand that uh, kind of efficient market theory. But I, I don't think this would really be an issue if we had a solid currency. If we had a currency that didn't devalue, dollars devalued 95% since the Fed was founded in 1913, there'd be very re- little reason to d- diversify your holdings because you, you, your savings would never lose any value. The only reason people diversify their holdings now is to pre- prevent against risk. Well, the biggest risk is the depreciation of the currency. So if you solve that problem, you don't have to worry about diversification. Okay. Now let's talk about China. Uh, you know, over the last decade or so, they've been growing, you know, economically. Uh, what many don't know is the fact that Robert, it was like the supply. They used the supply siders side, Robert Mondale, who, mm-hmm. you know, his, you know, he was the advisor to them mm-hmm. that basically started their boom. Why, mm-hmm. why do you think that they decided, even the Chinese? decided to go with him. Why do you think they decided to trust his judgment instead of the other great economics? Yeah, Chevy, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Uh, look, so th- we're talking about the early 1990s, mid-1994, and China is at modernized agricultural sector to some degree, and they want, they want industrial and commercial success as well. And so from the perspective of the early 1990s, they want to get the thing that works. And they're looking internationally, like what is what works? What's the system that works? Keynesianism doesn't look too good from that perspective because, like, yeah, sure, maybe it gave the post-war era prosperity, but it hit it hit the brakes hard with the stagflationary 1970s. Now this Reaganomics thing, now that worked because you know from the, from 1994 you just see this huge boom when Reagan came in, and it lasted until you know his successor kind of kept. Canceled it with the tax increase, and so from the perspective of 1994, 
the, the Reagan revolution just looked like a great model to many new places around the world, like Eastern Europe, which just come out of some of, some of the Soviet empire. And so they, they decided, the Chinese decided, well, why don't we just get the guys who founded supply-side economics, founded the Reagan revolution, come in here and tell us what to do. And so they called up Robert Mundell, who founded the theory. And he said, well, yeah, you have to have a fixed exchange rate to the dollar, and that's going to be uh, a great blessing for your economy. And it has been. So they've grown at these hyperbolic growth rates ever since they fixed the RMB to the dollar back in 1994. Okay. Now let's talk about the Bretton Woods. The Bretton Woods. Uh, you, said that, you said that this should be a second, another Bretton Woods. Like, why, why would you why, – why, why is that? Well, no, no, I, I don't think uh, I don't think I would advocate a second Bre- Bretton Woods necessarily. Um, no, no, I, I yeah, I mean, Bretton Woods was a monetary conference in 1944, and it was a kind of a big bureaucratic thing. And I'm, I'm in general not <laughs> don't don't have much confidence that big bureaucratic things can uh, produce really salutary results. But what I do argue is that that the Bretton Woods order was not permitted to reach its natural outcome. And that was a was a great missed opportunity. The probably the most important missed opportunity in the comprehensive history of the world since 1945. Um, all I mean to say is that if Bretton Woods had been allowed to play itself out correctly, we would have had a restoration of the classical gold standard at some point in the latter 20th century. And today, the world economy would be on such better footing than it is. That would have been the natural outcome of Bretton Woods, but Bretton Woods was canceled unceremoniously in the 70s. And so we never got to okay. see its natural outcome. Okay, now, now another uh, thing was, you know, the U.S. The US got off the gold standard in 71, I believe. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, why, why is that so, so important, you know, for the dollar to have been to the gold standard? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, just kind of the real economic performance indicates why it's so so important. So, the, you know, the previous years to 1971, uh, you know, the United States had a great 1960s boom, 5% growth per year. Stock market uh, goes from, you know, uh, breaks to all-time high, uh, 1,000 for the Dow. Uh, inflation is negligible until the late 60s. So, it's you know, everything's great, right? Then in the 70s, everything stinks. You have recessions all the time, double-dip recessions. Unemployment goes up to 10%. Inflation bursts past 10% as well. So you have the misery index, unemployment plus inflation, and double digits, if not over 20. Uh, Stock market loses 75% of real value. Uh, Investment opportunities are horrible. Stagflation. So commodity prices are gigantic. Um, So that's the reason. You know, I mean, you (laughs) you want the good stuff, not the bad stuff. The good stuff was before... Nixon went off gold. The bad stuff was after. Uh, so that's the reason not to go off gold. You want you want the good, good economic performance, not bad. Okay. Now, what? Who are? You? Let's talk about uh, you now. Who are your? Who were your heroes growing up at the time? Well, yeah, it was uh, certainly not Jimmy Carter. I mean, I guess when I was a little boy, I mean, I was I was a little boy in uh, Carter's presidency, and it was very strange. I remember thinking how you know unimpressive un- uh, the nation was becoming. You know, I was just thinking this as a little kid uh, under Jimmy Carter's leadership. Um, let's see, growing up uh, back then, I'd have to remember. Hello? I'm gonna have to cast. Yeah, hi, Chevy, you still there? Yes. Yeah, okay. I'd have to I'd have to remember uh back then uh who uh 
who my heroes were. I'm, I'm afraid I can't. I can't remember. I, I, I don't know if I can answer that question accurately. Well, well, who are your heroes now then? Oh, now, okay. Well, I mean, um, well, I think uh, the the Pope who just resigned is a great hero. You know, Benedict. He's a good, good, good world leader. Um, Let's see who else in in economics and in commerce in the in the realm of affairs. Uh, that's harder to say. Um, I, I you know there are some you know some people who are doing some very good productive things in the economy, like John Mackey, you know the CEO of Whole Foods, who's really trying to carve out a comprehensive way for the private economy to minister to the economy's needs uh, for everyone. So I'd, I'd, I'd have to think about that in general. But, I mean, the, the principle that I would apply, in, like looking for heroism, is that is, you know, people are trying to to uh, bring real solutions to our problems by means of the private sector. Okay. Now, now uh, what is your favorite book? Like, what book would you recommend? Like, what's your favorite book? Uh, well, let's see. Well, works of literature would be my favorite book. Uh, you know, uh, maybe something like Don Quixote, uh, the Cervantes read, which I read when I was in Spain. A little, a little, some of it in Spanish, um, and uh, you know, the Brothers Karamazov, by, uh, Dostoevsky. Those are those are great books. I know. Right before I wrote Iconoclast, I read two books to to kind of get myself in the literary flow of things. I, I read um, I read Henry James's The Bostonians, because Henry, Henry James. You know, talks a lot about the responsibilities of America in prosperity. That's one of his big themes, and um, so that, that he's an important writer to read. And uh, I also read a, a book by Saul Bellow, uh, Herzog, which is a book all academics should read, actually, because Bellow really knows how to how to write in, in a kind of Anglo-Saxon style, which any, any writer of American English needs to know. Okay. Now let's get back to the Don Quixote. Since this is, uh, you know, Festival of Exploration going on, mm -hmm. uh, why do you think that book is one of the best written books? You know. Oh yeah, I mean, well, it was the first, the famous first novel, right? So it was right at the beginning of the, re re you know, in the thick of the reading revolution, uh, back when paper was all of a sudden very available, and a century before. You know, it came out in the early 1600s. Uh, the reading had become immensely popular, and so it was the first great reflection on on the phenomenon of reading, of mass reading. And uh, it's just kind of—I've always thought of it in, with respect to Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica. It's kind of a summa of Western civilization, it, even to a degree, Islamic civilization. Uh, it's just kind of a summary at a very crucial juncture, you know, 1600. Of the where Westerns, where civilization was at that point, and where it probably would go in the future, and it ends up being a very prophetic book, prophetic about the you know the rise of individuality and some of the problems would be associated with that. Uh, so it's a no, it's it's a summary, it's a great summa of Western civilization. Okay. Now, for those that are listening, uh, who, what would you, what advice would you give to them who are like, you know, looking to like, not only get into your field, but to, you know, whatever it is, like, if they're going through, like, want to achieve their goals, you know, mm -hmm. what would you say to them? 
Yeah, you gotta you gotta re- read a lot. You gotta know a lot, and you have to know how to write. Um, so you have to re- really concentrate on know- knowing a lot of stuff, and and on always convince yourself that um, you, you know you don't know enough, and hold yourself to high standards. Um, so if you read, you know, so reading books, um, you should uh, be impressed if if they're good, and 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 try to understand why they're good, and then read more. Um, I do think, Siobhan, one, one thing I do believe in you know, knowing a lot of students is that students don't read enough. I mean, so they should read the whole the whole canon of classical literature, the entire thing, um, and uh, you know, then uh, get going from there. Okay. Now, that's really cool because of the fact that now, you know, I'm you know, I can honestly say I started reading a lot. You know, different different books like you know books that were that are you know, help you to, you know, to, to, like, gain knowledge on how to get through, you know, in life. Like, you know, just mm-hmm. recently read The Education of Millionaires, which is a really great book that mm-hmm. has that has really changed my shift, shift in mm-hmm. mindset. Now, okay. you know, why, you you mentioned about writing, you know, a lot of people, you know, writing, writing has really made a comeback, especially, you know, with Twitter and Right. You know, Facebook and all that and blogging. blogging. Mm. Why why do you think it's not emphasized enough, you know, for for anything? Well, I mean it is kind of hard. I mean it's there's a great there's great joys to writing, but uh there and there are there are a few natural writers out there, but you know, to write well for most people, including a lot of very intelligent people, takes real effort and you just have to be committed to it. So uh right with the with the explosion of writing uh you have e- even greater responsibilities to uh, to write well um but it can you know it can be hard but then it, it can come naturally to you once you really once you really put your mind to it Okay now th- of course uh you could say writing has you know for you know for like I could I can advocate for that as well because you know from I don't think you you know Peter Rozelle. You, you you know that Peter Rozelle is you know served under Reagan at that time. He always said this you know for those that you know when he once had a PR firm, he said that if you don't like whenever he did interviews, one question he always asked you know do you like to write? And if mm-hmm. the answer was no, then he would say you know I'm sorry you know good luck in the future. Right. He know he knows the importance of it. Mm-hmm. Why, you know, do you think that he, you know, for like history, especially those that want to be historians as well, you know, that's a lot of writing. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that they, you know, the students don't, you know, they feel they don't feel obligated to it or hate it? Well, I mean, one of the reasons is if they felt obligated, they would realize how much work they have to do. Because, I mean, I I know how the quality of student writing, okay, it's pretty bad, Uh, quite bad, actually. So not even up to minimal standards. So, right, I mean, if your goal is you have to be a good writer, you got a lot of work to do. So I assume that's one big reason students say we don't need to worry about it, because if they said something else, they would have to get to work and hard to improve the situation. Okay, and the same thing with businesses as well. Like they're they're now training, they're retraining people how to write as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, right. Okay. No, I mean I'm not making a, the uh, the strange point. I mean every, everyone in business yeah. knows that you know people have to be good writers. 
All right. Now, last but not least, uh, what, like, are you working on any projects at, at this current moment at, at the time? Yeah. Yeah, I'm doing a couple things. I'm uh, I'm editing a collection of some great essays in the history of supply-side economics that should come out probably uh, later this year. And I'm also writing a book kind of on, on the uh, history of economic growth. Uh, history of economic growth uh, from what, mm-hmm. like which side? Uh, it's mainly kind of in, uh, from the intellectual history side. So I'm, I'm mainly talking about the idea, the the rise in the theory of economic growth uh, with respect to actualities. You know, so there was uh, kind of growth theory arose late in the Industrial Revolution after after most of the growth was completed, actually. And it's um, just kind of ma- mapping those two events next to each other. Okay, now I'm going to let you go on this one. Uh, but, be- I, you know, you just heard of the death of Hugo Chavez. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're right now, you know, may see that as, I don't know, it's, I don't know, what's your thoughts on that? Well, you know, here was a society that had a pretty pretty significant bourgeoisie um, was was uh, w- well plugged into the impressive things that were going on in the world economy, and um, that all kind of got flushed away with with Hugo Chavez, and you know the bourgeoisie got eliminated, and you know they became a farcical player within the international system, and so it's you know it's, it was on. On balance, I mean, obviously, it's not not a very positive development. Okay, but now now do you think that Venezuela is going to get back? To you know, that? I have no or idea. No? I mean, I, I think the natural course of the civil of that society is to be a sophisticated member of the international system. Um, they got buffoonery with with Chavez and worse. Um, so no, but I think the the natural um, status of, of Venezuela and the Venezuelan people is to be. You know, kind of a vying with Argentina to be the most sophisticated civilization in Latin America. Okay. Vying with Argentina and Uruguay, I should say. All right. Well, Dr. Dimitrovic, uh, thank mm-hmm. you for coming on the show. And mm-hmm. it was a, it was fun. And um, you know, I hope wish you more success in your endeavors. Great. Thank you very much, Shelley. All right, sir. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. All right. Well, everyone, uh, that was that's the show. Uh, thank you for joining me on What's the Word, and we will see you next week, and have a good day. Bye-bye.